I'm Nicole Antoinette, and this is Real Talk Radio, a podcast filled with honest conversations about everything. Friends, this is our very last episode. That feels so wild to say. I'm having a lot of feelings. <sighs> and to bring things full circle, I am joined today by my friend, Alex Franzen, who longtime listeners will remember was Real Talk Radio's first ever guest way back in August of 2015. Alex is a writer, consultant, and entrepreneur based in Hawaii. A couple points during this conversation, you can probably hear the birds outside her window. It's very lovely. She's the author of six books and the founder of The Tiny Press, a publishing imprint specializing in very short books of 100 pages or less. Alex writes beautifully about topics like life, love, death, grief, unplugging from technology, creativity, focus, productivity, simplicity, time, and how we spend it. In this conversation that you're about to hear, we talk honestly about heartbreak, grief, money, quitting social media, and more. And I hope this conversation feels as nourishing for you as it did for me. And whether you've listened to one episode or every episode of Real Talk Radio these past six years, thank you so much for being here. My mission in creating this show was to fill the world with more honest conversations, particularly the kind of conversations in which there are no easy answers. In these 200 plus episodes, we asked a lot of hard questions together, and my guests and I told stories about work, love, sex, money, sobriety, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, big life changes, and so much more. This project, I don't even know how to sum up what this project has meant to me. It's definitely been one of the great joys of my life, and I could not have done it without my sound engineer, Adam Day, who also created the music for the show. He has been with me from the very start. Adam, I'm very grateful for you. You probably had no idea back in 2015 that that one random email for me when I was like, hey, you want to make the music for this show? Can I hire you for this? Would turn into a six-year creative partnership, but I'm super grateful for it. I also want to give a shout out and big thanks to my friend and former spouse, Paul, who financially supported us while I was getting this show off the ground back in 2015. The listener-funded model that eventually grew to be able to pay everyone involved in this show, including all of the guests for the past few years, with higher rates paid to all guests with historically marginalized identities. It's a funding model that I'm so grateful to have been able to build. So thank you to everyone who's supported me and this project and these conversations. And while this very iteration of the show will be complete after today, I would love to invite you, if you are feeling like it, to come over into my Patreon community and help us build whatever's next. You can find us at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. It's a really sweet space filled with really fun people that prioritize honest conversations and digital togetherness. There's a monthly private podcast episode series that I do, fun live online gatherings every month, and just lots more good stuff. And it's sliding scale, so you can support, you know, from whatever place makes sense for you. It's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. I would love to have you. Hopefully I will see you there. And in the meantime, please enjoy my conversation with the ever-brilliant Alex Franzen. All right, we are good to go. Alex, welcome back to the show. Yay! I was going to say welcome to you too, but it's your show and you're always here. <laughs> oh my welcome gosh. Welcome to us both. 
Welcome to us both. So set the scene for us. Where in the world are you right now? What can you see from where you're sitting? What'd you have for breakfast? Take me into the little lovely details of your day today. Ooh, that's fun. Okay. Well, for breakfast, I had a piece of sourdough toast with butter and raspberry apricot jam, and it was amazing. I usually have a smoothie for breakfast. Uh, I've kind of been on a smoothie kick lately, but today was like a toast day. It just happened. Where am I? I'm in my office, my home office. I live in Hilo, which is a small city on the east coast of the big island of Hawaii. Most people have never heard of it. It's not very big or touristy, but I totally love it. And my office is a little weird right now. I'm kind of in transition because I'm actually moving to a new house fairly soon. So like I don't have any artwork on the wall behind me. Things are feeling a little like it has that kind of like halfway packed up transitional feeling. Um, But I can see my beautiful backyard with all the green, lush green foliage, my little plants in my office. I've got a photo of my mom and dad on my desk. My dog Zuki is sleeping on the floor underneath me. It's a very peaceful, peaceful moment. What about you? Where are you at? That's popping. First, (laughs) any photos and videos that I have seen of you living in this space are just like very idyllic. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting. I've lived in Hawaii now full time for almost three years, which is wild. The time has flown by and it's, it's very, it's such an interesting experience being, you know, an outsider who's not from Hawaii and now putting down roots here and kind of becoming a local in a way. And it's also, you know, Hawaii is, it's it's everything you see in the photos and on TV. It's white sand beaches, it's coconuts, it's tropical drinks by the ocean, it's all of that. And it's also like fire ants who sting you when you swim in the river and hurricanes and tsunamis and volcanic eruptions and poverty and like, you know, there's this whole side of Hawaii that's really rough and challenging. And, um, you know, folks who live here deal with all the same challenges as folks anywhere else. Like it, it is a, a beautiful quality of life, but it's it's also real life. You know, yeah. it's, you're not you're not on vacation just because you live in Hawaii. Um, yeah, but I, I love it. And I, I really feel like this is my forever home. I've never been happier um, anywhere in the world. Hmm, that makes me so happy to hear. I yeah. can relate to what you were just saying, sort of the difference between the fantasy of the thing and the reality of the thing. It's the yeah. same, it's the same <laughs> with van life, honestly, you know, like it's very easy to park your van in a gorgeous place and to post really pretty pictures on the internet. And like, that's real for sure. It's, there's yeah. so many benefits of it. And also you're like, peeing in a pee jar, like squatted over in the van in the middle of the night. And like, you know, when it's hot, like we've been going through a heat wave here and you just like lay awake sweating for hours at night because you can't really fall asleep until it's cooler. Even with the fan on, there's like things like that (laughs) that are very unsexy that balance out the, uh, you know, the really um, romantic parts of it, I guess. Totally. Yeah. It's all of it. It's both. Yeah. So to answer your question, I am currently in Bend, Oregon. 
This all feels very full circle. You are, this is the final episode of the podcast. You are the final guest. You are also the very first guest. So that to me feels very, I like the like closing of the loop with that. Uh, right now I'm sitting in my friend and former spouse, Paul, who, you know, I am sitting in his guest room. And obviously this is, we shared this house. We were married when I started this podcast. So it's like the beginning of the show and the end of the show are both happening in the exact same place. So I, uh, <laughs> I feel grateful when I texted him and said, you know, I have to record the last episode. Can I come do it from your house? He was like, of course. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm actually, I'm having like quite a lot of feelings. I don't know that I expected to feel as emotional, like ending the show as I do, but I'm really yeah. grateful um, to be doing this with you. Oh, okay. Well, I wanted to ask you as a guest on the show, but also a listener and fan, why end the show? Um, what prompted you to make that decision? Oh, okay. You're going to ask me questions now. <laughs> sure. <Yeah. laughs> um, I wish that I had a really concise, good, like soundbite answer to that, but I don't think that I do. I think you know this about me. I tend to have a really good sense in my life of when something is nearing a feeling of completion, whether that's a relationship of any kind, whether it's a creative project or a job. And something in my early and mid-20s I feel like I was notorious for staying too long in situations because I was afraid to leave, whether, again, that was like a relationship or a job, or rather I wouldn't let myself leave unless I was miserable. Like I thought that as, until something was like, you know, rock bottom, whatever that looked like, that I had to sort of tough it out. And transitioning out of that was a really conscious thing for me to realize like, oh, actually you don't have to be miserable in order to make a change in your life. You don't have to wait until something is so bad that you have to change. You're allowed to change just because you want to. And that really has informed, I feel like the last 10 years for me. And I just got the sense probably about a year ago that this project had about a year left. And I don't know there wasn't, nothing happened. There wasn't a particular day. I just felt like what I set out to do with this show was starting to feel complete. And it's really important to me to end something before I resent it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. And I think that, you know, you're, you're an artist, you're a creative person and books come to an end, you know, projects come to an end. And a podcast is a funny kind of project because it, it could sort of go on indefinitely forever and ever if you wanted it to do so. And there's, you know, there's radio shows that have been on the air for 50 years and are still rolling. But I love that you just had a, a gut feeling. I call it your hut, your heart and your gut, where your hut was just like, this has been a beautiful project. I've loved it. And I just feel like it's it's about time to wrap up and move on to the next thing. And you're listening to that. Um, I wanted to ask, like, I mean, this has been a major project for you. You've, yeah. you've done what, like probably hundreds of episodes at this point. Yeah, well over 200. Yeah. Over 200 episodes, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours of conversations, guests from all around the world, from all walks of life. You've covered money, sex, divorce, addiction, I mean, and everything in between. And I was wondering, like, how how have you changed as a person since this show began or like because of this project? I've been thinking about that a lot. I mean, I feel like this 
it's not an understatement to say that like this project changed my life for sure. I mean, it changed my politics. It changed my body image. It changed my finances, the way I think about kind of hustle culture, productivity, really everything, like every aspect of my life has been touched by this. I don't know that there's any one thing in particular that I can point to and say, this is different because of it. I think the biggest takeaway for me is just how much more nuance there is and how few things actually fit into that binary black and white sort of thinking, which um, has been a big unlearning for me to realize that there's so many different ways to do a career. There's so many different ways to do a romantic relationship. There's, you know, like there's just so many more possibilities. And I feel like all of the guests who were brave enough to come on the show and just tell the truth about their lives without an agenda, without necessarily trying to sell anything, but just saying, hey, this is what it was like, you know, for me when my mom died or when I filed for bankruptcy or when, you know, I got that big promotion or any of the things that we've talked about, just hearing people be honest about what's true for them, I feel like was very permission giving for me to be more honest with myself and also to imagine possibilities where I didn't think that there would be possibilities. And that, I mean, a podcast is a secret weapon for making friends with cool people, like highly recommend, (laughs) right, for people. And I feel super grateful, um, not just for the new people that I've been able to meet, but it's been interesting, like getting to interview friends like you, like people who you have a relationship with outside. It's actually really special to be able to have these like deeper structured conversations with people in your life. And I've gotten to do that, you know, with my partner, with various friends. So that feels special. And it's interesting because I don't feel like podcasting is done for me. I love the audio storytelling medium. I'm feeling pretty confident that I'm going to make another podcast, maybe more than one other podcast. And I don't know that my style would change so much. Like I'm never not going to be interested in long form, honest conversations, but it just feels like there needs to be a pause before something else starts. And at first I was afraid of ending this before knowing what was next. I think it's a lot easier to walk away from something if you're walking directly to something else. But yeah, oftentimes for me, I can't really conceptualize what might be next until there's some open space. And so it feels to me to be like a brave choice that I'm making within myself to be like, I'm willing to be in that liminal space of, I don't know exactly what's next and I'm willing and like curious to see what happens. So thank you for asking. Yeah. And I I hope that you'll do something to like celebrate the completion of a significant project that has changed your life. It's touched many lives. I know that you've cultivated an amazing listenership of people who I'm sure will miss the show, but who also, you know, get it and celebrate you moving on to your next project. And I'm one of those people. Ah, well, thanks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at toward the end of the month in the Patreon community, I'm hosting a podcast retirement party, actually, Yay! like a live, a live thing with like, you know, prize giveaways and other fun stuff. So yeah, fun. it felt that was something my my business coach Bear recommended as well of like, do something to like to mark this. I yeah. actually, I mean, that could be an interesting transition of things um, to talk about something that I have been really practicing in the last, hmm, I would say year, maybe a little longer is intentionally creating a culture of celebration, like really making an effort to celebrate even small things. Um, What's going well for you that we can celebrate? Oh my gosh. Well, that is a perfect little segue and we did not even plan this, but I am totally on the same page. I feel like 
I want to celebrate more. I want to have more joy in my life and feel like a kid again. I feel like this last year in particular, I've been doing so much adulting and I have like an adulting hangover. <laughs> like I can't think about mortgage pre-approval applications or like retirement plans anymore right now. Like I need a minute. Um, but one thing that I've been doing is hiring magicians. <laughs> So like I had a, a little team party um, for myself and a few folks who work with me at my company and we hired a magician to provide entertainment and they did a, a performance for us on Zoom, which was amazing. And I was like, well, that was great, but hiring one magician is not enough. I need to go further. So then we hired another magician to do a presentation for like our customers and they uh, heralded themselves as a bisexual activist magician and they used magic to like educate people about gender and sexuality. It was amazing. And I was like, well, that's great. But also, I mean, why stop there? Why not hire more magician? So then um, I'm, I'm moving out of my house pretty soon. The pandemic is sort of-ish winding down. And I, I realized, you know, I, I haven't really been able to have a party in my house and like meet my neighbors and, and do normal neighborhoody things because it was such a weird pandemic year. So I threw a 4th of July party a couple of days ago and hired this couple and they're kind of like a magic acrobat circus troupe. So I invited the entire neighborhood. Like I put invitations in everyone's mailbox. I was like, hey, we're having a show, 6 p.m., drop by, you know, whatever. And they did stilt walking and fire spinning and juggling and magic tricks. And people brought all their kids. Like there was like 20 kids there, kids I'd never even seen before. And it was so fun. Like I'm still on a high from the magic show. And it was amazing to like finally meet some neighbors I'd never even met before. It felt like a block party. Did I mention the bubble machine? Oh my God. That. <laughs> so I've been celebrating hard the last couple of days. And I mean, like my, my cheeks hurt from smiling so much. It was such a delight, especially coming out of such a rough and like emotionally strenuous year to just do something so silly mm -hmm. and delightful. So I've decided it's my life's mission to just hire as many magicians as I can possibly afford for the rest of my life. That's great. Really <laughs> for various <solid>. activities. <laughs> Excellent goal. Really support that for you. Yeah, Thank I you. am someone who chooses a word of the year. That's a practice of mine. And my word for this year is fun. And fun. Part, right, like part of it for me, I'm quite a serious person. I think I default mm -hmm. into more just a more serious way of being. And there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think that's a problem to be solved, but I need to put a little bit more intentionality around that sort of lighthearted, fun, playful attitude. And yes. it's been nice to just try to cultivate that in small ways. So hiring magicians, something I did not think of, but I will potentially add to my list. Thank you. Yes. Hire a magician or watch magic shows. You can watch them on YouTube or whatever. There might be a magician in your neighborhood who's doing a show at a coffee shop. They're everywhere. 
and I support magicians. That's great. That's that's our takeaway today. Everyone go hire a magician. Yes. Go support your local. Look, it hasn't been an easy time to be a traveling circus performer or magician. So let's show them some love and support your economy by hiring magicians. So six years ago, when you were the very first guest on this podcast. Oh my um, gosh, has it been six years? It has been six years, which is very wild. Um, (laughs) So much has changed in both of our lives in those six years. But I wanted to start by asking you about something that has stayed the same. You've been off social media that whole time, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I guess it was around six or seven years ago that I deleted all of my social media accounts. And, you know, I think at the beginning, and and honestly, still to this day, I, I never viewed it as like a black or white, all or nothing permanent decision. I just sort of felt like social media has taken over my life. It feels exhausting. I don't like how it makes me feel. It feels like it's holding me back more than it's helping me. It feels like a distraction. So I decided to just take a temporary break for a summer to see how it would feel to live and work without the distraction of social media in my life. And it felt amazing. And so then like a summer turned into half a year and half a year turned into a year. And and then I sort of realized like, wow, I guess this is just what I'm doing now. Um, So I officially deactivated all my accounts. But I, I kind of always viewed it as an experiment. Like, never say never, nothing is forever. Who knows, like maybe in a few years, there'll be some new social media platform. And I'm like, you know, that one actually sounds really cool. Or I think I want to use that one. Like I'm open to potentially using social media again, if it feels right. But for the last six, seven years, uh, it just hasn't felt right. I haven't felt the need for it. And it feels pretty great to not have that be a piece of my life. Um, Yeah. So that's, that stayed the same for these last six years. Will you, I'm interested in Going back to the beginning of that a little bit, you know, I know you said that it was taking over your life. Will you talk a little bit more specifically about like, was there a moment or a day or something where you were like, I just cannot with this anymore? Like what made you decide that the experiment was more worth it than not? Because I imagine you had some fears or concerns about doing it. Yeah, there were there were a couple of moments, actually. It wasn't just one, but there were like a series of things that happened in a in succession that brought me to that point of something needs to change and they were well there was one instance where i was jogging i was running in downtown portland where i lived at the time back when we both used to live in oregon and i was running distractedly i was like you know doing that thing where you're kind of jogging but you're sort of looking at your phone and then you come to a stoplight and then you're scrolling to pick a new song on spotify and then you're jogging and then you stop and take a photo like i was i was running exercising but just in such a distracted way and kind of glancing at my phone every other second um you know taking a photo to post on instagram to show my followers like look at me running or you know that kind of thing and I almost got hit by a train. I almost got hit by the, that, I think it's called the, not the light rail, the, I'm blanking on what it's called, but that, that, that train that goes through, you know, downtown Portland, the commuter train. I literally just kind of absentmindedly jogged very close to the tracks and almost got hit by the train. 
And I jumped out of the way, like just in the nick of time. And my, my heart was pounding and I was like, you know, my adrenaline was pounding. And, and the first thought that flashed through my mind was if I got killed by a train because I was looking at Instagram, like my mom would kill me, even though I'd already be dead. <laughs> she'd, she'd kill me again. Um, and I just felt so embarrassed and like, what the, like, who have I become? At that moment, I kind of realized like, wow, this is not just a distraction. It's actually like harming my life, my relationship with social media. So that happened and that was a wake up call. And, you know, I wish I could say like, after that moment, I, you know, logged out of Instagram forever and that was that, but no, like that was just sort of the first in a series of wake up call moments. Um, another was what I now refer to as the muffin incident. Uh, the muffin incident was, I, it was, it was the 4th of July, actually. It was the 4th of July, must've been six or seven years ago. And I bought this huge blueberry muffin and it was like the size of my face. And I thought it was hilarious. And there was something, and I, I wanted to t put a caption on Instagram showing the muffin, the size of my face and like write some kind of witty caption about like, this is America, like happy 4th of July. Like to me, it was hilarious at the time. And I, you know, was doing that thing where I was trying to get the perfect selfie of me with the muffin. And I must have taken like 300 photos of me and that muffin to try to get the perfect, perfect shot. And I kind of fell into that stupor where you don't realize how much time is passing. But like suddenly you blink and you look up and it's like two hours later and you're still taking photos of your face and a muffin. And that's what happened. And then I remember I came inside and Brandon, who was my partner at the time, he had kind of been watching all of this happening. I was out on the balcony and I came inside and he was like, you've been out there for like 90 minutes. Like, what is happening? Like, what are you doing? And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, it's been like 90 minutes with you and that muffin. <laughs> and, and, and we kind of laughed about it, but that was another moment where I was like, I just spent 90 minutes of my life, like of my one and only precious life, taking photos of my face and a muffin so that I can post like a sort of vaguely witty caption on Instagram so that hopefully some people will click a button of a heart so that then I will have self-esteem. Like, <laughs> like I, and I just was like, huh, that does not sound good. <laughs> that's, that's not the way I want to live or like the person I want to be. And it was sort of funny, but like not funny at the same time. <laughs> oh my God, I'm literally crying. It's, <laughs> it, it, it's like this deep, dark humor though. It's so funny because it's so relatable. Like that yeah. where, you, where you go into that hole where you don't realize how, just how much time has gone by. I didn't realize it until I started putting the like limits, like the iPhone lets you limit how much time, you know, the little thing pops up. You've, you know, done your limit of amount of time on Instagram today. And I'm like, oh my God, already? Like that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm, huh. anyway, continue with that story. <sighs> really yeah. like, breaks me. <laughs> oh my gosh. So then after that, well, then I started to get curious about time and how, because I had no, I was like, how much time am I spending on social media every day, every week? I had no concept of it. It kind of just blurred into my life. 
And so I sat down one day with a calculator because I wanted to figure out the time. And so I, I kind of I looked at just Twitter. Um, I was actually active on several platforms, but I looked at Twitter as one example. And, you know, on Twitter, you can see like how many tweets you've tweeted in the last year or whatever. So I, you know, I looked whatever number it was, like 300 whatever tweets. And, and then I guesstimated like, okay, well, how much time goes into, you know, writing, editing, posting, tracking each individual tweet. And I guesstimated it was like around 10 to 12 minutes per tweet. If you figure like, okay, it takes me a couple minutes to write it, then I got to shorten it, then I got to add a link, then I got to post it, then I got to check and see who retweeted it, then I got to check and see who commented, you know, da, 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 da. Um, so I guesstimated like about 12 minutes per tweet. So then I multiplied 12 minutes by the number of tweets in the last year to figure out how much time I had spent on Twitter in the last year. And then I multiplied that by like, you know, the next by like 40, I think, because I wanted to see if I continue using Twitter at my current rate for the, for the rest of my life, like until I'm in my 70s what's the grand total? Like what's the grand total amount of time that will have gone into Twitter? And when I did the math, um, it was like 3.1 years. And that was a real wake up call moment. Um, I remember feeling like that can't be right. I must've done the math wrong. So I went and did it again, but it was correct. Um, all of that time you know, 10 minutes here, 20 minutes there, 90 minutes there, it, it all adds up. And, and then seeing that number, like three years, three years of my life, and that's just Twitter, like not even counting Instagram, Facebook, Google, all the other platforms. Um, I really felt like nauseated. I felt, I felt kind of dizzy and sick. And that was really the pivotal moment where I, where it was kind of like my rock bottom moment in a sense where I realized I, I'm not okay with this. Um, I'm not okay spending three years of my life on Twitter. Um, and I and then I was ready. I was ready to make a change. And that that was the final motivation to, you know, take a break, cut back, and then eventually remove social media altogether because that's what felt right for me. Um, yeah. Those were a couple of the moments along the way. Yeah, I really appreciate you telling these stories because I think there's there's something that I have experienced with you know various kinds of life changes, whether it was quitting drinking or anything else, where it usually doesn't happen all at once like a light switch. Sometimes it does, but I think that it's usually a combination of things like you mentioned that kind of sit in the back of your mind and you're thinking about it. And it's for me the point where like the pain of staying the same becomes out, like starts to outweigh whatever the fears I have of making the change. And yeah. unfortunately, I have found that I can't fake that. Like if I'm not ready to make the change yet, I'm not ready. And that's oftentimes where I see someone else doing something where I think, oh, that's a change I might like to make or an experiment I might like to try. Sometimes the truth is that I'm just not ready yet. Like I'm not, <laughs> not that you have to be in pain to change as we were talking about earlier, but sometimes with some of these harder, like really ingrained, maybe even addictive habits, I do have to get to the point where I'm like, this, it's too painful. Like I, I, I'm, I am willing to take the risk to change. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and that's exactly what happened for me. There was, I mean, the anecdotes that I just mentioned, and then probably a dozen other things as well, little moments. Um, so yeah, like you said, it wasn't a change that happened all at once, like a light switch. It was more like a slow realization over the course of several months that eventually led to that point of feeling like enough is enough, you know, and this isn't the person I want to be. This isn't what I want my life to be like. And and then being ready, you know, being ready to do something about it. Yeah. A phrase that I have gotten from you and your writing over the years is this idea of life minutes. Like, how do you want to spend your life minutes? And that story that you told of literally calculating out the minutes is such a good representation of that. But I'll, I'll often think about that, not just with social media, but with anything else. Like, is this really how I want to be spending my life minutes? They are numbered, you know, like I'm, I'm going to yes. die and I don't know when, like I'm actually going to die and I'm going to waste life minutes, like comparing myself to some stranger on the internet. Like, no, thank you. No, thanks. Yeah. I mean, we, I forget what the number is, like the average number of life minutes, the average number of minutes that someone's alive. I mean, you can figure it out, multiply, you know, age 72 by however many minutes in a year to figure it out. But it is interesting when you think about your life broken into minutes, because you can look at a clock and see one full minute go by and that's a minute you'll never get back. And it's wild how many things we can do kind of on autopilot that gobble up, you know, not just a minute or two here or there, but like it adds up to months of your life, years of your life, decades of your life, um, sitting in traffic, commuting on Instagram, you know, things that we really don't want to be doing. And the time adds up. Yeah. Okay. So I'm curious how you balance or navigate the fact that everything that you just said is true, but not falling into this sort of panicked time scarcity? Am I making the best use of time? Like that's definitely something that I struggle with is this. It's funny. I'm at the time of this recording, like three and a half weeks into taking anxiety medication for the first time, which like, thank goodness is working. And I'm feeling so much better than I was. I didn't realize how bad I was feeling until the absence of it. It's like the phantom arm Mm -hmm. or whatever. And one of the presentations of anxiety for me is these like obsessive thought loops, particularly about like forward projecting into the future or about time scarcity. And so, I mean, maybe that's not something that comes up for you, but I'm interested if there's anything in here that you have found to be helpful of like, how do you stay really intentional with what you're doing with your life minutes without almost like swinging a pendulum too far where it's like, Emma, how do I know I'm making the absolute best use of this like vacation or whatever? Right. Yeah. I know. I totally, I've had major time scarcity moments as well. Um, so, okay. So here's what I, what I've been doing for the last couple of years that is helping. Um, I, I recommend making like a final 24 hours list. So basically imagine that you have 24 hours to live. This is it. This is the last day of your life. You've got 24 hours. Make a list of what you would most want to do in that time. And, you know, when some people do this exercise, they're like, I want to go in a hot air balloon over the south of France. And like, that's great. If that's true for you, put it down. But most people, when you make your final 24 list, usually you write down things like hug my child, take my dog for a walk, um, be in nature, watch the sunrise, watch the sunset, savor a great meal, uh, call someone and tell them I love them. It's it's usually really simple things that you realize you would most want to do on that final day. 
And then what I try to do is I just try to incorporate at least a couple of those things into my life every day. And then that way I feel like if today is my last day, which it very well could be, at least I'm attending to, if not everything, like a few of those things that are really important and precious to me. And then that creates a nice balance because, you know, in, in an, any typical day, like I probably do have to do some work and I probably have to pay some bills and I probably, there's, there's sort of just like adulting, getting through life minutia that we all have to do. But if I can also leave a little space in my day for those kind of like last day of life experiences, then that, that feeling of time scarcity and time panic and like mortality dread uh, starts to dissipate a little bit, at least for me. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's a good reminder too, the same way that you were saying that, you know, living in Hawaii is not necessarily what people would think living in Hawaii is, right? That this type of stuff is the same, that it's every moment can't be a peak moment. It's just not, that's not realistic. That's not how life works. And also to your point, that's not even necessarily what we find most fulfilling, right? It can't all be a hot air balloon over the beach or whatever. And it's these other little things and incorporating them more often it's gives little us things, the feeling. right? Yeah. yeah, like, I mean, at this point in my life, you know, I, I never end a phone call with my parents without saying I love you. I always want those to be my last words to them because they could be my last words to them. I watch the sunrise almost every morning. There, there's little moments in my day that might only take a second or two or a minute or five, but that make me feel like if this was my last day, it would be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that really helps with that feeling of, um, you know, am I using my time wisely? Uh, and then also, I think there's a piece of it that's like, you know, if you get into that mindset of like, am I using every single minute to the greatest possible advantage? Am I maximizing every single minute of my life? I think that that gets into almost almost like the hustle culture, right? Like of needing to like maximize every single moment and I mean, that's just a personal choice, I think, to step away from that and go, you know, not not every minute of every single day needs to be about excellence and mastery and maximizing and striving. Like some moments are just about, you know, blowing bubbles in your backyard and watching your dog chase them or sitting and reading a good book or whatever, you know, like those moments are just as precious, too. but that's kind of just like an internal choice, I think, that we each need to make. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I want to ask you one more thing about social media before we move on. Uh, I mean, I obviously also – I think anyone who is who is on social media thinks about social media. There's like a meta thing there, specifically if you mm-hmm. use it both personally and for work, um, which obviously I know you did and, and I do. And I feel like the two – when I talk to other people about it, the two – hangups or fears that come up most often when people think about changing their relationship with social media is like keeping in touch with friends, that sort of like FOMO socialization thing, and then marketing their business, especially if they've built that um, use heavily using social media. I think those are two of the most common concerns. Will you share like one or two things from each of those categories? Like if those are the fears, sort of what actually happened for you? And was there anything yeah. surprising that came out of it? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I had I had both of those fears. Absolutely. Um, I definitely felt like if I'm not on social media, will my friends forget about me? You know, will I will I lose touch with people that I really care about? And I mean, basically just what I decided to do was, okay, I'm not going to be on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all of those places, but I'm going to connect with people that I care about in other ways. I'm just going to find other alternatives. Like if social media didn't exist, what would I do? And so I did other stuff. I would, I would text people. I would call people. I love to catch up with friends and chat on the phone with my headphones while I'm walking my dog. I would send people letters in the mail. I would invite people to visit me and like have quality time together, like have a trip together, have a weekend together. Um, last Christmas, I mailed these beautiful, you know, boxes, like holiday gifts to people I care about. And I, I got so much joy and pleasure from, you know, curating those boxes. So I, I also like contacted everyone I know and got their birthday and put their birthday in my calendar so that I would remember to at least, you know, call or send an audio message or something. So I just did the other stuff, you know, I did the other stuff that you can do to cultivate a friendship. Or like I mentioned, you know, earlier, like I threw basically threw a block party to, to connect with my neighbors the other day. And, and I found that not only did people not forget about me, but I mean, I feel that my relationships grew richer and stronger as a result of connecting in those other ways. And so, I mean, I, I feel so blessed to have a community of, you know, at least four or five really, really good friends that I could call at two in the morning if I was hysterically breaking down and I know they would be there for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's very powerful and special. So that's what I did with regards to, to friendships. Yeah. I, something, I mean, there's a parallel that's coming up for me and listening to you sort of for when I quit drinking, like one my biggest, biggest fear was around social stuff there. That's, I mean, so many of my relationships were based around like drinking, partying, like going out culture. And I felt like, oh my gosh, people aren't going to invite me to stuff. I'm not going to have friends anymore. And, you know, long story short, some of that did happen. But part of what I had to get okay with within myself was accepting that I will miss stuff and that it's still the right choice. Like sometimes I, I think with social media that I like I get to the point of, you know, well, if there's anything that I'm going to miss, then it's then I have to stay on it, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not yeah. true. Like there there are friends, people that I am no longer friends with. Like I mean, it's been 10 years now that I've been sober, so this was a long time ago, but um there are people that aren't in my life anymore that like the the relationship didn't make the transition and there were things that I didn't get invited to in those 10 years either because people were uncomfortable having someone there that wasn't going to partake or whatever their reasons were that there's like there was something very comforting for me comforting for me about not waiting until I had a guarantee that I was never going to miss out actually like I am going to miss stuff and what if that's still okay yes and that's such a great point because FOMO fear of missing out whether it's missing out on a party invitation or a client or something like that I think is the number one one of the number one reasons why people use social media even when they don't want to because of that fear of missing out. And I mean, the way that I kind of started talking to myself about it was I came to the realization that like there there is no possible way that I can know about everything and have every opportunity. Like 
unless I literally read every single newspaper, every single blog, every single podcast, every single social media feed, every single, like, unless I somehow became this like superhuman computer machine that could intake all information in the world every day, then I'm always going to be missing out on something. And, and that's okay. Like I don't need to do everything or be everywhere. And there's, great joy in editing and simplifying and streamlining your life. And like, there's that phrase now, JOMO, like the joy of missing out. It's actually very joyful to have less noise in your brain and fewer emails in your inbox and do less and do it more joyfully. Um, And so, yeah, you know, I'm sure I miss out on things occasionally, um, or I'm a little behind on certain things. Like I, I just found out recently that a couple of friends of mine are producing a beautiful event in California in a couple weeks, and they've been promoting it on social media. And because I'm not there, I kind of just missed the the news, you know, I didn't know it was happening. And that happens occasionally, but it's okay. Uh, And what I'm sure you feel the same with, with your decision to stop drinking, like, what I gain in return is worth so much more than what I might lose. So yeah, and and that ties into the work side of things as well. You know, people, people always ask me because I'm self-employed and I've been self-employed for over 11 years. They ask me like, well, how do you find clients? How do you find customers? Like, how do you market your services and your books and everything if you're not using social media? And just like with the friend thing, like social media is, it's like one option. It's one way that you can sell your work, but it's by no means the only way. And there's hundreds of other ways that you can get the word out about the books and products and services and artwork and, you know, whatever it is you're selling. Like you can start a podcast, you can start a newsletter, you can send a press release to the media, you can do television appearances, you can buy advertisements, you can throw a, you know, grand opening or relaunch party, you can notify friends and family, you can do postcards, you can do flyers, like, I could go on and on and on. But there's, once you really start brainstorming, I think you realize, like, there are so many options, there's so many ways that I can connect with potential customers and make a sale, you know? Um, And we just forget that because social media has become so dominant in our lives. We forget that there's alternatives. There's other options that can be just as effective, if not more so. Um, And so that's what I've done. That's what I focused on for the last six or seven years. And, uh, and it's been, it's been great. It's been working. And you know, I, I think what I've realized about social media is that it's optional. That's it. You know, it's if you love it and you want to use it and it brings something beautiful into your life, that's awesome. Like, absolutely use it. And it can be used to do so many great things. But if it doesn't feel good, then you don't have to. And there's just like you don't have to drink alcohol and you don't have to buy a house and you don't have to have children or, you know, whatever else. Like, there's always alternatives if you're if you're open to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that reminder, and I loved what you said earlier too about treating it like an experiment. I approach my life and particularly my business that way as well, almost 
because it takes some of the pressure off emotionally. I have a really yeah. hard time making a decision if I feel like, and now I have to do this forever, or now I am like this person forever, because also that's probably not true. We're constantly changing and evolving and holding things with a looser grasp, having a little yeah. bit more of a playful attitude, right? Even if, you know, I am still on Instagram, that's my only social media left, but I was really clear. I took a, a sabbatical last summer, a little bit of time off work, which was the first real solid time I had taken off work in like 15 years, which could be a whole other conversation about like rest and overworking and overgiving. Um, but one of the things that I, that became really clear to me is that I understand the things that I enjoy Instagram for, but that I don't want my livelihood to be even remotely dependent on it. And so like, do I sometimes make more money because I have it? Yes. But I'm also doing a lot of those other things that you mentioned. And it was a cool creative exercise of, okay, if I'm not willing to have Instagram be the portal to making money, could I start to experiment with some of these other things and see how they work even while still having Instagram? And it's again, like opening up more space around. It's not necessarily like you use the thing all the time or you never use the thing. It's that like Mm -hmm. black and white you know, mindset, it could be so many different shades in between and like so many different options. Totally. Yeah. And I love that. Like that's, that's always what I encourage people to think about is, you know, if you want to use social media, if you want to include it as part of your personal life or your professional life or both, that's great. And, And just do it in a way that feels good to you and do it intentionally decide, you know, in what ways you want to use it and when and how much and set boundaries instead of having it become this thing that like me and the muffin story, you know, just starts to engulf your life and gobble up so much of your time in a way that doesn't feel good. There's always a a middle way if you want to do that. Absolutely. So I know that you have been on quite a significant money journey for the last year or so with some attitude shifts and other things. I love talking about money. So I'm glad that you are open to digging into this. Um, What's a good place for us to start in this conversation? Oh, man. Um, Yeah, I have definitely been on a big money journey. And it's, I mean, really kind of similar to the social media stuff, like, it wasn't just one thing. It didn't change all at once. It was kind of a succession of things that had been brewing and percolating in the background and that kind of really um, escalated, I guess, last year. So about maybe five years ago, I hired for the very first time, I hired a money coach. She's wonderful. She's based in Portland. Megan, um, maybe I can give you her info for the show notes. And I hired her because at that time I felt like I was, I felt like my relationship with money had gotten way out of whack. I had accumulated a lot of debt. I felt super ashamed about it. I had been devoting a ton of my time and energy into helping my partner at the time to grow his business. Um, I basically been like working for him for free as like a free employee because I wanted to help him succeed and I had been neglecting my own career in the process and I had just gotten into this place where like I felt like I I had tons of debt. My income was way lower than it had been in a while. I felt really stressed out. I felt ashamed. I felt overwhelmed. I I just felt horrible in relation to money. And so I I was in a real like I, I realized I need help. Like I need help in some way to get things back on track. Um, So I hired her and we worked together for about a year. And I think we met 
maybe like once or twice a month. I can't remember exactly. But what she really helped me with, she had such a gentle spirit. And she basically said, you, it's time to start looking at your money. Like you need to bring attention to your money and be willing to look at your money and not just bury your head in the sand. Like, and even if it's so uncomfortable to log in and look at your credit card balance or look at your, you know, checking account balance, or even if it like makes your stomach turn like little by little by little, you need to start looking at it and like turning attention towards it again. And so in such a gentle way, she helped me start doing that. And like literally one of our first sessions, the only thing we did was like log in to look at my credit card balance. And I, I was crying. Like it was that uncomfortable and scary. And, um, but little by little by little, she helped me realize that bringing awareness and attention and being willing to look at the thing like dead in the eyes, as scary as it is, is also like the most powerful thing. And she helped me to change my attitude from, you know, oh my God, how did I get myself into this hole that I'm never going to be able to climb out of to an attitude that sounded more like, okay, this is not great, but I have the power to get things back on track. And it might take a year, it might take five years, but like, I can get things moving in the direction I want. And that was a very powerful attitude shift that started to kind of like turn the river in another direction. So that was kind of, that was about maybe five years ago that all that was going on. Um, I made some significant improvements. Things started to like kind of just really, you know, balance out. And then, <laughs> then I went through like the most catastrophic breakup of my life. Um, you remember, you were there, um, and you were my friend during that time. And it was horrendous on every level, emotionally, financially, we sold our house, I moved to another state, like, there was about a year where I was in such a state of grief and depression, that it was so hard to work. And just to, I, I had so little energy to just do basically I could only do the absolute bare minimum and so I just kind of decided like you know what I'm not in a good place and my focus right now needs to be on my mental health and like rebuilding my self-esteem and you know if that means that I just kind of coast for a year and don't really focus on like earning and improving my financial situation that's okay like I'm just going to do the bare minimum that I need to do to pay my rent and get through this year and get myself together. And that's okay. So I kind of gave myself permission to do that. But then coming out of that year, and as I started to feel stronger again, things started to shift. And then I connected with a couple of different people who were each kind of like little like money teachers in different ways, you know, uh, probably one of the most significant was a woman named Rachel, Rachel Rogers. She became a friend and also a client of mine. She hired me to do some copywriting for her company. And she is, I mean, one of the most inspirational people I've ever met when it comes to money. She came, she's a, she's a black woman. She's a mother of four kids. She's a self-made millionaire. She is, she had her own incredible money journey, like coming from not a lot of money to having 
major student loan debt to starting a business to eventually growing, you know, a company that now employs like 20 or 30 people. Um, and so she also hired me to help coach her while she worked on her first book. And her first book is called We Should All Be Millionaires. And it's a book particularly written for women and people of color and queer folks and like other people who are not usually centered in the conversation about wealth. Um, so really like, it's funny, it's like, I'm, this is kind of clicking as I'm talking about it. The process of working with Rachel as she wrote that book, I mean, basically like she would write a chapter and then she would send it to me and I would read it and I would send back feedback and then she would write the next chapter and send it to me and then I'd read it. So we kind of worked like that. It basically like selfishly, I felt like I was getting a masterclass in reconstructing my entire attitude about money. And so many times I told her like, I can't believe you're paying me. I feel like I should be paying you <laughs> for the privilege of getting to go on this journey. And by the time that project was complete, I mean, I had a whole different attitude about money and probably the biggest shift, the biggest shifts that happened for me were, I began to see me as a woman, as a queer woman for that matter, like I began to see me earning more money and building wealth as like a political statement in a way where, you know, we live in a world where out of all the women who start businesses every year, most of them close, most of them struggle financially and only 2% ever reach seven figures in annual revenue, like a very, very small. And we also live in a world where like, you know, men are three or four times more likely to become millionaires where, um, you know, the men are so far ahead in so many ways financially and for so many reasons. And I began to realize like, wow, if I can earn more money, then I can do even more good in the world. And I can also be a role model and demonstrate what's possible. And I can build a company that now provides like wonderful employment for people. And I began to just create, I mean, just a bigger vision for my life and the kind of impact that I could have. Like you can absolutely have a huge impact on the world, even if you have no money, but you can have a different kind of impact if you got some money, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I began to see things through that lens. And then the other really big shift that Rachel's and her work imparted to me was this idea that I am capable of earning more money whenever I want to or need to, period. Like I have that capacity. I may choose not, not to exercise that capacity. I may choose, you know, well, it's, just, it's not my priority right now. And that is totally okay. But like whenever I want to turn on the money faucet, I have that capacity. If I want to generate an extra $2,000, an extra $10,000, an extra $45,000, like whenever I want to or need to, I can do it. And that was, I mean, that alone was like, a huge revelatory attitude shift and so empowering, you know, and, and something that spills over into other areas of life, not just financial, that, that realization of if I really want to or need to, I can, there's always a way. 
Um, so I could go on and on. I recommend everybody read that book. It's wonderful and very unique and special. But since then, I've I've been on a different path. I, I've decided that I want to grow my company to a million dollars in revenue and above. I've I hired employees. I have a team now. That's something I never had before. I'm so excited to build like a company culture where eventually we have, you know, profit sharing and free mental health services and like wonderful things, you know, that I can provide to change to change lives, you know, to change lives, not just of our customers, but of our team members. Um, I also have a different vision for myself personally. You know, I, I want to own real estate. I want to build a house where my parents can live where they're, when they're older. I want to be able to take care of them. I, I want to, I want more, you know, I want more than just paying my bills and paying my taxes and kind of scooting into the next year and, and just sort of making it, you know, like I, I want more for myself and for all the people I care about. So that's, that's a quick nutshell summary of the journey <laughs> that I've been on. <laughs> yeah. I, I find it really helpful to hear you say that you want more. There's like something about that, that I was certainly not like raised to think that it was okay to say that, particularly when it comes to money. And I, I feel like my own money journey, I mean, we're always somewhere on the journey, right? But yeah. um, is really looking at a history of under-earning and like yeah. over-giving and like making myself too available to people. And it's just been like a really interesting, I mentioned last summer taking some time off work and there's definitely been in the last year, a lot of unpacking around like hustle culture and like sort of productivity, like toxic productivity and productivity addiction and like worthiness being attached to busyness. And all of that obviously then goes into the money side of things as well. And sort of for me, really recognizing that I feel like when I graduated college and turned down the, you know, like work a more traditional job track on purpose to kind of do this seasonal employment, more creative stuff, patching things together, self-employment that I've been doing, right, for my entire adult life, I felt like I was making a choice to have the autonomy and the time freedom and more of the creative freedom. And the price of admission to have that was financial instability, not having good health insurance, all these things. And there was, you know, I was, it was, yeah, I was like 22, 21, 22 when I made that decision. And I didn't realize until the last year how foundational, like I just accepted that that was true. It is either one or the other. Like you either work in a career path that you don't really like where someone owns all of your time, but financially your needs are met and you're taken care of, or you do this thing that you want to do, but you're always just going to be like surviving and not thriving. And it's been a really yeah. interesting process of being like, hang on, sort of like what we were talking about before. It's not just the black or white thing. Like what if that thing that I decided was true isn't actually true and I can do work that I enjoy and I can also earn enough money to have housing and healthcare and, you know, some adventures and that type of stuff. And so it's been, I'm, I'm still like very deep in it right now and really looking at the roots of this, but I'm super grateful for you telling, you know, I know it was just a snapshot of your story, but looking at these moments in our lives where we decide, actually, I do want more and that that's yeah. okay and doesn't make me a bad person. And 
having to sort of look at what our associations are with money, with wealth, with like time, all of this stuff is so deeply rooted and has so much to do with not just culture, but like what our, you know, caregivers and family of origin believed. And it goes so deep. And I feel like all I want to do these days is talk to people about money. So thank oh, you. I know it's so fascinating. And, and it is a lot like you just shared. I've done so much of that too. Like identifying a belief that you have and kind of going, wait a minute, it, you know, is that actually true? It, it seems like it's true, but, but is it? <laughs> because so often there's another way to look at things. Um, like throughout so much of my adult life, as I've been self-employed, up until fairly recently, I was like a lone wolf. Like I did everything by myself. You know, I, I updated my own website. I did all my own marketing and sales. I did, I did my, I even prepared my own taxes. Like I, I did everything. And my, my attitude was um, if I hire other people or if I have employees or freelancers or if I'm managing a team, ugh, that's going to make my life so complicated. And I don't want the responsibility. I can't handle the responsibility of taking care of other people. I can barely take care of myself. Like that's kind of what I kept telling myself. And so I kept telling myself, like, it's just simpler if I do everything by myself. And gradually over the last couple of years, I've realized, you know, there's, there are some beautiful qualities to keeping things really small and just doing everything by yourself. And there's also a cost, you know, there's definitely a cost. There's a cost in terms of it becomes really difficult to, to keep growing, you know, because you're constantly limited by just how much time and energy you have. You always hit a ceiling at a certain point. So little by little, I've been like taking baby steps and then eventually bigger steps towards allowing myself to have support, you know, hiring a very, very part-time assistant and then a full-time assistant and then more people and then, you know, and, and growing a team and, and challenging that belief and realizing that, you know, having more responsibility and having more people to manage and take care of can actually be really freeing and like it comes with a cost but it also comes with so much to gain and you know now like i i'm at a point where i can take fridays off you know i don't have to work every day of the week and i i don't have to stay up till 9 p.m you know hitting a deadline or there's so much that i've gained as a result of creating a support team. So, I mean, that's just one example. And of course, I'm not saying like, everybody go hire a bunch of people. But um, I think the, the lesson there is like, look at those beliefs that seem so rock solid true, and question them vigorously, because you may begin to realize this isn't actually true, or there could be another way, or I've been so committed to this, but it doesn't serve me anymore. Um, there's always a way to un unravel that and build a new belief system. Yeah. And one of the things that I love, this is particularly easy on social media, but of course it can be done in other ways. When I'm in a period like this where I've identified what a belief is and I'm not necessarily, I don't believe the new thing yet, right? Like I'm aware of what maybe the limiting story is or the thing that I'd like to move on from, but I'm nowhere near the point where I actually believe what it is that I want to believe. Something that helps me to close that gap is to find real life examples of people who are doing that, right? So whether it's, okay, for me, I would like to find other, you know, 
solo creative entrepreneurs or people who at least started that way who are doing more than just financially surviving, right? And sort of seeing the journey of growth you've been on has been really impactful for me. And just like almost putting together like a kind of like a board of directors or an inspiration panel, even if those people don't know that that's the role that they have for you. The same mm-hmm. thing happened when I um, was first getting into long distance hiking. Like, you know, I was not an outdoorsy person at all, had never been camping before, was in my thirties. And for me, I'm like, is this something that like a woman who grew up as an indoor kid in her thirties can actually get into? And so I really went on a little rabbit hole journey on Instagram of let me find other women in their thirties who got into this later in life or who are even older than that, who we're now like super badass outdoors people. And it was really helpful for me to have these like real world examples of, okay, other people are also closing this gap that they're, I, that maybe I'm not going to have their exact same experience, but it just helps me to sort of believe that it could be possible for me. Yeah, absolutely. I totally know what you mean. Role models, right. And, and having, I mean, it's, if they don't know who you are, that's great. And it's beautiful to have those aspirational role models, but also having friends, you know, having friends and colleagues who are open about talking about money, talking about money goals, who can celebrate with you and whose attitude can rub off on you and become infectious. Like, um, I feel so lucky that I have a small circle of like three or four people who are also self-employed and who are also like very vocal and proud and excited to talk about money and earning money and wanting more money and what we're going to do with the money once we get it. Like, I think having those kinds of friends who can rub off on you is so crucial Mm -hmm. too. You need to like bathe in that energy. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, whatever that adage is that like, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, right? Like there is something to that, you know, what it is that you're surrounding yourself with. I'm curious, do you, I don't know how granular you get with your money goals. Are you clear on what enough money is for you? Like what's your relationship with enoughness and also striving at the same time? Ooh, yes. Okay. So I have to um, give a shout out yet again to Rachel Rogers because she taught me this exercise. It's in her book and she has written about it many times, but here's how I figured out what enough means for me. So what you do is you make a list of what your absolute dream life would include. Like, you know, whatever that means for you, it's going to be totally different for every person. And so, you know, for me, it's like, I want to have a three bedroom house in Hawaii so that I can have my bedroom, a guest bedroom and an office. I want to, you know, get massages two to four times a month. I want to be able to buy, you know, healthy produce from the farmer's market. You just make a list of everything that your dream life would include. And here's the thing. You have to like really allow yourself to write down exactly what you truly want. You can't be like, oh, well, like that's a little too much. Like, no, like you have to allow yourself to really write down if you want to get a massage twice a week, if you want a housekeeper once a week, if you want to have meals delivered, like whatever, whatever you want. Maybe it's none of those things. Maybe it's, you know, new sneakers or a trip to Bali or, you know, whatever. But you write down exactly what you want. And then you do the math. You figure out how much would it cost to have my absolute dream life? And you just Google everything and figure it out to the to the best estimate that you can. You know, a three bedroom house in this neighborhood, my mortgage would be whatever, whatever. Or, you know, getting groceries delivered once a week would be blah, 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 or whatever it is. You find how much approximately per month would my absolute dream life cost? And then that's your new target. 
and then you know, and then, you know, maybe you add 10% for incidentals or whatever, but just doing that, I had never done that before until maybe a year or two ago. Like I'd always looked at, okay, well, how much am I earning right now? And then how can I divvy up that pie to cover like my current life? I had always looked at budgeting in that way, but this is kind of like a whole new way to think about budgeting where you're looking at, okay, well, what would it take? to get what I really want. And once you figure out that monthly number, it might be more than you're currently earning. It might be less. It might be exactly what you're currently earning. And you kind of just didn't realize like, wow, I'm already, I'm kind of doing it. Um, but it's so powerful to find out that number. And so let's say that you do that exercise and you're, you find your monthly number and you're like, whoa, this is like three times more than I'm currently earning, yikes. Then the next step is you start brainstorming. What could I do? I, if I believe that I have the ability to generate more money whenever I want to or need to, then what could I do? And you start brainstorming like 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 ideas, no matter how big or small or crazy or wacky or whatever, all the different ways that you could bring that amount of money in the door. And you just start writing down ideas. And sometimes like you come up with an idea that never occurred to you before. But that's something I did about two years ago for the first time, thanks to Rachel. She encouraged me to do that. And it was life changing. And what I realized is that my dream number was actually not that far off. Like it was more, it was closer than I thought. And it was really exciting to be like, well, well, if I just did, you know, X, Y, and Z, like, I, I'd be there. I, I could do this. You know, this, this isn't as far-fetched as maybe I feared. So that's a really cool exercise to try. And then, you know, you can take it in kind of stages. Like maybe you, you make your absolute dream life. You find your absolute dream life number. It's like 10 times more than you're currently earning. You're like, oh my God, yikes. But then maybe you could go, okay, well, what's my like attainable dream life for now that can get me moving in that direction? Mm -hmm. um, so there could be different phases to this, but that's yeah. kind of how I figured out what enough feels like to me. Yeah, I, I've never done that specifically, but something I'm a big spreadsheet person, particularly with like money related things, love making spreadsheets, love a good budget. And something that I have is I essentially made what my budget or like spending plan would be per month, like at different income points, Just trying to yeah. see kind of like a more incremental approach. Like I just was able last month to give myself a raise for the first time in like quite a long time and being very clear of like, okay, what am I excited to put this extra money toward? And I have like a tab in the spreadsheet that's like, okay, when I'm able to give myself a raise that's, you know, $250 more a month, then that's how it, that's how I would like to spend it. If it's $500 more a month, that's how I would like to spend it. And of course, mm -hmm. maybe I'll change my mind on those things, but I've, I've been finding it really helpful to have these like incremental that it's not not like all of a sudden I have to be making four times as much, you know, yeah. and having those like incremental mm -hmm. things. But a through line that's coming up in a lot of what you're sharing, both when you were talking about, you know, sitting with the money coach and looking at your, you know, credit card statement and crying, but that being something that was really transformative. And then again, doing this exercise of how much does my dream life actually cost? The through line is telling yourself the truth, like telling yes. yourself the truth about where you actually are with as little judgment as possible. Like, of course we do yeah. have guilt. We do have shame, but like letting that all be present and being willing to sit with what's true and like, hopefully not weaponize the truth against yourself. And then also being able to sit with the truth of 
maybe how big your ambition is or like the truth of what your desires are and being able to hold all of that truth at the same time. I think there's something about just doing that, even if you don't change anything, being able to, I mean, so much of my work is around this idea of having honest conversations with yourself. There's something really impactful about this is what's true for me right now, period. And just like letting it sit there. Totally. Yeah. That, that is the crux of it. It's just being honest about what's going on and what do I really want? And, and I think what I've realized with me and money is I want more than I've ever dared to admit to myself in the past. I want to be the kind of person who can, you know, write a $10,000 check to a cause that I care about and have it be like no big deal. And I want to be able to give, you know, monthly bonuses to every single person on my team and help them prosper. And I want to be that person who has a beautiful cottage where relatives can come stay. And and I want to be that person who can take a month off work and have a team in place to take care of customers when I don't want to. Like, I I want a lot. And And I think that a lot of this journey has been like you said, like getting, becoming more okay with saying, I want a big life, you know, and, and that's, and it's about money and it's not about money at the same time, but more about just getting honest about what I really want. You mentioned when you were telling kind of the, the recap money story that you went through a really painful breakup. Are you willing to talk about that a little bit? Oh yeah, we can talk about it for sure. Um, I guess my first question, when it comes to the actual reality of healing from heartbreak, which obviously, you know, is individual to different people, what do you wish that people were more open and honest about? Like, as you were going through that experience, was there anything that you were like, fuck man, like, I wish we talked about X. Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, Hmm. You know, I I think that when I was going through all of that, it was sort of like if the, you know, as with any as with any painful event, at first people are very sympathetic, you know, how are you doing, checking in on you, making sure you're okay. And then of course, time goes on, people move on, life goes on, they move on to other matters, but like you're still you're still hurting, you know, you're still in the pit. And I do remember, although my support network, my friends and family were amazing, but I do remember that there were, there were moments like, you know, maybe a year after I had left that relationship where I was still not okay. And I was still like profoundly grieving. And there was a little bit of that attitude from some people in my life of like, wait, you're, you're not over it yet. Like you're not, you're not dating yet. Like come on, like, get over it, you know? So, and I, I think one thing that I wish people would understand is just that, you know, losing every breakup, every divorce is different and every, every single journey is different, but there are some breakups and divorces that are more than just losing a a relationship. Like it really does feel like a death it feels like a death of a life that you had, an identity, a future, a, a worldview even. And and for me, it, it was that. It was that major. And it, it just, it takes as long as it takes, you know? And I think as a friend, 
if you know someone who's going through something like that, to just be patient with them and know that not everyone is just going to snap out of it after three months or, you know, a pint of ice cream or whatever. Like it may take them a long time to really work through all of that and just to, just to be patient, you know, and one of the kindest things that a friend of mine said to me during that time was there's no rush. And just those, I'm getting like emotional thinking about it, but just to have someone say to me, there's no rush, you know, like you don't, you don't have to just be okay. Um, that was really beautiful. And to, yeah. And to give myself the time that I needed, you know, I, it took me almost two years before I sort of felt good, <laughs> like, you know, like really. And before I would even remotely consider beginning a new relationship with someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, just time and patience and, um, being patient with yourself, being patient with your friends, if they're grieving anything. I think the the other really big thing I've learned about from that experience, I was speaking to a friend of mine and, and she, she did experience a literal death. Her husband died in a very horrific and shocking manner and she didn't have any time to prepare for it. It just happened. And we were talking about grief one day and, and she said to me like, she thinks about grief like like waves in the ocean and when the when it when it first starts it can feel like the waves are just constant like it's just the wave after wave after wave after what you get no reprieve no relief no peace you're just being pummeled by these waves of grief and then over time it's like the waves are still there and they're still crashing on the shore but maybe it'll be like a wave and then several minutes of peace, and then another wave, and then a little more time. And as time goes on, it's like the waves never go away, but the the space of time in between each wave gets longer and longer to where eventually you go a whole day before another wave hits, and then you go a week, and then you go a month, and then and then eventually maybe it's a whole year, and you, and you feel a big wave like on an anniversary of that loss, and then you're okay for another year until another wave hits. But just thinking about grief in that way of like, you're, it's kind of like when you have a really, really significant loss or death in your life, it, it's never over. You know, you carry that with you forever, but the waves get farther and farther and farther apart as you grow and heal and grow into your new life. And, and that was kind of just hearing her say that and hearing her be honest about that was really comforting, too, because I think I would I had been waiting for the day when it would just be over. And it was powerful to realize, like, it's never going to be over. Like, I'm probably going to feel some degree of sadness and loss about this relationship for the rest of my life. But it won't be as intense and as all consuming and new things will grow at the same time. Um, So that's my, my rambling. um, No, it's, (laughs) it's, it's beautiful and and honest. And I, this is the thing that I wish that people talked about more, the fact that it's better and it's yet, it still hurts. Yeah. That, 
we, I mean, we love like a good redemption story, right? Like that's the arc of so many movies and so many things, whether it's like post breakup, right? And then you're like, life is so much better on the other side. Or we really like these tight, tidy narratives of coming through the other side, which I, I get why they're very cathartic. <laughs> There's something about that, that that feels great. And yet I don't know that that's always the most realistic thing. And yeah. I don't know that I, I've been thinking about this over the last couple of years in the context of a friend breakup and which is also something that we like really don't talk about for as much as, you know, romantic breakups get a lot of airtime. I think friend breakups don't as much. And something mm-hmm. that I've been reflecting on is the real sadness of one of the things that you lose either, like you said, like with a death or with a breakup of any kind or the end of a relationship is all of the moments and the memories that that other person was the only one who shared them with you. And then like, once that person's no longer in your life, it's not that those things didn't happen. Of course they did. They're still in your memory. They're still in your heart, but it felt like a real loss to me and like a real grief that so many of these either like lovely memories or big memories or whatever that I no longer had that person to share them with, that it felt like I was losing part of myself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think you summed it up so beautifully. Like, it gets better and it still hurts. Like, both of those are true, you know? That loss is real. Um, Another really beautiful realization that I've had about grief and loss, this was very shortly after I left that relationship and moved from Oregon to Hawaii. And it was right around the time when um, one of the volcanoes on the big island of Hawaii was erupting and was, it was a major eruption. I mean, it covered roads, it destroyed homes. Like it was, there was evacuations. It was a whole thing. And I met up with my friend Kanani and she's lived in Hawaii her whole life. She grew up here and she was talking about how when the lava first started flowing, it completely destroyed this one beautiful like swimming hole that had been, you know, just treasured for generations. It was this beautiful swimming hole. People would take their kids, their grandkids, like it was a beloved part of the island and the lava just devoured it, covered it up. It was gone forever. Um, And she felt such a such a loss. I mean, it was, it was like the neighborhood was gone practically, but once the lava cooled and things settled down and kind of the dust settled, so to speak, um, that volcanic eruption had actually, it destroyed that one swimming hole, but it created four new swimming holes. And it also created a black sand beach, like this incredible beach, the youngest beach in the entire world that, literally hadn't existed before and I'm gonna start crying again but I remember we were talking about sudden change and loss and death and grief and endings and destruction and she just said you know I was so sad to lose that one swimming hole I had so many memories there with my family but look now there's more than before. And just that simple statement of like, there's more than before was, I mean, you can see it's, it's still, it still affects me. And I think about that all the time. 
And that was so poignant, especially at that moment in my life as I was like freshly grieving the end of that relationship. Um, and when I look at my life today, um, like without question, there's more than before. There's more, more of everything that I want. There was so much loss and there's more than before. Yeah. And it still hurts, yeah. you know? And, and all of that is like true at the same time. Yeah. It's very much the both and that uh, holding space for yeah. all of those things. Can you share a couple of the specific, like more than before things? Like what feels really yeah. lovely to you? Well, um, you know, I, I think my life in Hawaii is, it, it's amazing. Like, I, I live in one of the most beautiful places on earth. I almost never wear pants or real clothes of any kind. I feel more connected to nature than ever before in my life. Um, there's something about living here, I think, because it's, you know, partly it's the weather, partly it's the culture, but there's, I'm just, I'm outside all the time. I feel different physically. Um I feel like I've slowed down a lot, but in a really beautiful way. There's so much more space in my life. I take more time to, I take more time off. I take more vacations. I take Fridays off. I have a slow morning. I, I don't usually even start work until like nine or 10. I, my whole pace of life has changed. Um, I feel closer to my family than ever before. I feel um, closer to a lot of friends, you know, uh, I feel, I mean, certainly like creatively and professionally, I've flourished in the last couple of years in so many ways, you know, writing new books and starting new projects. And um, I think also, I mean, I'm in a new relationship now, which is beautiful. And I'm so different in this relationship than I was in my last one. I'm Tell so me much more. more yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, well, I mean, for one thing, I have the attitude now of, you know, I, I want to have a life partner. I want to spend my entire life with someone. I, I want that journey. And at the same time, I also recognize that nothing is forever. And promises are beautiful and it's lovely to hear i want to marry you i want to be with you forever etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's beautiful and sweet and you never fucking know like you people change their mind people have a change of heart things happen so i i think my whole attitude going into this relationship has been I'm going to do everything within my power to cultivate something that lasts a lifetime. And we'll see, <laughs> you know, yes. like you, you just don't know. Yeah. And so that that's a huge attitude change. That's very different than how I felt, you know, in the past and just the level of honesty. Like I am, I think because I went through so such a massive heartbreak in a way it kind of just leveled me and I got to this place of like, fuck it, I have nothing to lose. Like I've already gone through the worst romantic heartbreak imaginable. So like, whatever, like, so with this new relationship, like 
if I, you know, if I'm stressed about money, if I'm having sexual issues, if I'm this, if I'm that, like whatever's going on, like I am just completely honest. And, and I think I am honest because I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid that they'll leave me. I've been, I've gone through all that and I lived and if I needed to, I could do it again. So there's, there's just sort of a whole different attitude about, um, about all of that and, and different priorities too. You know, I think that, I think in the past, like most people, I would get very swept up in like the romantic intoxication phase of like, oh my gosh, he has the most beautiful eyes or like, oh my God, his abs. Like I would get very, very swept up in kind of like physical beauty and um, that rush of oxytocin at the beginning of a relationship and and be, be willing to overlook a lot of issues, you know, um, like, you know, I don't know, the fact that maybe they don't treat me that well, <laughs> like, but they're so tall. Um, and so, (laughs) um, and so I think going into this current relationship that I'm in, I just had a whole different set of priorities. You know, my priorities were feeling cherished and feeling really loved and having someone who shared my values and my vision of the future and, um, who, would who had emotional intelligence like when my current partner told me that he sees a therapist every week not because he's working on anything in particular but because he just wants to have a good relationship with a therapist in case he needs that support at some point in the future i was like hello that's amazing (laughs) like just being with someone who like prioritizes mental health and emotional health and who's not afraid of of dealing with difficult emotions these are the things that are really important to me at this stage. Um, so all of this to say, um, when I was going through my horrible breakup and feeling so grief stricken and really feeling truly like I am never going to experience love again, it's just not possible for me. I remember my brother who had gone through his own divorce, um, and was sort of like a wise sage to me. I remember telling him, I'm, I'm never going to be the same. Like, I'm never going to be the same. My heart is broken. I'll never trust someone again. I'll never, I'm just never going to be the same. And he said to me, you're right. You won't. And that's a good thing. Um, and that was another huge lesson of, of all that grief is like, I am not the same person. I am, I have been reshaped as a result of all of this. And that's, it's actually been a very good thing. And I feel it just clarified a lot of things um, and set me up for what I hope, you know, it will be the most successful and healthiest relationship of my life. Mm, I hope that for you too. Thank you. Yeah, I was nodding furiously as you were describing a lot of those things, particularly what you said about um, not putting too much uh, not faith, but not putting too much faith in like promises, you know, that it's, it's really lovely to believe that something is 
forever. And that's exactly how I felt after getting divorced. And obviously our experiences of ending relationships, it was funny, it was right around the same time, but they were quite different, my experience and your experience. But a lot of the lessons, it sounds like we're the same or a lot of the takeaways for me. And I'm in this interesting period right now of really thinking about what marriage means to me and if that's something I would be interested in again. And if so, why? And if not, why? And, you know, really just like staying curious about what all of that is and, I'm enjoying the curiosity of it and really pausing and thinking a lot more deeply about it than I did before I even got married. Um, yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. yeah. Same. And also too, I think going through all of that breakup stuff, and I'm sure this has been true for you as well. It was also a good opportunity to take some, like some personal responsibility as well. And to really look at myself and go, you know, in what ways did I contribute to the demise of this relationship? And because there was plenty for me to take responsibility for and, and then to try to use that, you know, to make sure that I am mindful of those patterns and habits and that I don't allow that history to repeat itself in my next relationship. Um, And I think that's why for me, you know, taking, taking two years of being single and celibate and, you know, really trying to get to the crux of what just happened, why did it happen, what did I learn, and what can I carry forward? Like, it really took me some time Mm -hmm. to get that, get that education, I guess. Yeah. Um, And I know everyone's different. And for some people, they, you know, they only need a month before they bounce back into dating or meet someone special or whatever. And that's great. But for all, all y'all out there who feel like I'm not ready yet, I need more time. Like, I just want to say you take your time, you know, take five years, take whatever, whatever you need. Um, cause we all, we all grieve at our own pace. Yeah. And there's no perfect or right timeline. Like on sort of the other side of it, I got into a new relationship really quickly and I had a lot of sort of guilt and self-judgment about that. You know, Mm -hmm. like I should be taking more time or what is the experience of starting a new relationship while still grieving an old relationship? And your words feel just as true for someone in my situation of we're all on our own timeline. And I think I really appreciate what you shared about sort of your learnings about grief through this. And it's helping me sort of, I guess, like contextualize what, what one of mine was. I think because my situation, I mean, it was probably like the best divorce of all time, right? Like all things considered, all the things that people can do to each other terribly during a divorce proceedings, like none of that happened. And we're still incredibly good friends, chosen family. I'm in his house right now. And I think there was an element because it wasn't outwardly that bad. Not that people weren't supportive, but when you said like a lot of people were checking on you, that kind of thing, I didn't really have that because I wasn't falling apart in that Mm -hmm. really classic sobbing on the couch, eating ice cream, rom-com type of way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we successfully lived together for months after deciding to get divorced. And one of the things, but I was still incredibly sad. Like it was the right decision and I was still incredibly sad and it took a lot to get over it. And a takeaway for me was like, oh, like I shouldn't, as far as how I approach other people's grief and like holding space for other people, like it doesn't have to be a catastrophic death or they're not allowed to be really sad, right? Like grief comes from so many different things. It can come from, you know, the, the end of a particular career path or identity, or like there's so many things that cause so many different types of grief. And it's like, we've put on a pedestal that the only grief that's acceptable. And even that is only acceptable to a certain degree is death, you know, or something really bad. And it really was a learning lesson for me of, so many of us are grieving so many things all of the time. And can we be more, 
can we be softer and more empathetic and more compassionate to each other during all of those different flavors of grief? Yeah, absolutely. There's so, so many different flavors and, and you're right. It's, it's like, you know, you, everyone is grieving something almost all of the time. Basically, let's just, let's be nice to each other. (laughs) Don't don't be an asshole. You never know what someone's going through. That's a great place to start to wrap up. Don't be an asshole. Is there (laughs) anything that we haven't covered that you wanted to share? I don't think so. This has been so beautiful. I'm just so happy that we had this time to catch up. And um, I mean, it just feels like catching up with you. I almost forgot that we were making a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Um, Well, since we are making a podcast, if you could leave folks with one call to action based on the conversation we just had, what would that be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I would say turn off your phone turn off your phone just for an hour, for a morning, for a day, for a weekend, whatever time frame you want. And just rinse out your brain. Just give yourself a little peace away from all the digital screens and all the distractions and pressures and everything. And, and go, go see a magic show. Yes. Turn off your phone, go see a magic show, give yourself a hug. Don't be an asshole. Great, great lessons. Wisdom by Alex Franzen. Drink your water. What is obviously not social media. What's the best place for people if they are new to you to find out more about what you do, your corner of the internet. You have a wonderful newsletter. I did a mass unsubscribing of things a couple of months ago and I'm like, there's like five newsletters that I'm actually excited to open and read and yours is definitely one of them. So I would recommend that for folks. Yeah, I have actually I have two websites now. I have like my personal website, which is alexandrafranzen.com, which is my name.com. And then I have like my company website. Our company is called Get It Done. So the website is you can get it done.com. And those are the two places to go see books that I'm releasing and courses and um, all that kind of stuff. I will put links to both of those in the show notes. Ooh. Thank you I so really, much. Alex. I like um, I like the Get It Done website because we decided to do like little illustrations of jellyfish and octopus, which I'm really into. Mm-hmm. Go go see, you'll see what I mean. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's a delight. That whole website's a delightful experience. So would <laughs> recommend. We'll put the links in the show notes. Thank you so much. Yay. And that's our show for today. Our music is by Adam Day, who also handles our sound editing. Thanks, Adam. You're the best. And huge thanks again, I can't say this enough, to our Patreon community for making this honest conversation, this whole entire podcast, and so much of my other work possible. Like my weekly personal essay and discussion thread series on Substack, which is called Good Question. Yep, that is funded by the Patreon community as well. Your monthly funding allows me to keep creating resources and gatherings for folks who crave honest conversations, both with themselves and others, and I fully believe that these conversations can change our lives, our relationships, and our world. Maybe that sounds like a lofty goal, but it is one that I believe in with my whole heart. To join us, just come on over to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Our community operates on a shame-free sliding scale, so you can feel good about supporting this work from within your own means. So I'll see you over in the Patreon community. Yes, hopefully. And until next time, know that you are doing great. You are exactly enough. You are not alone. And I am totally rooting for you. 